What is their potential to expand their geographic reach and increase their lethality? And ultimately, what does it mean for Mozambique and stability? It's been two years, almost two years, and frankly, we don't have the answer still. And this is why we're doing this event today. According to Zitmar News, there has been 319 people killed from these attacks in the last two years and more than 128 attacks. There are lots of theories about what's happening, but there are really no consensus on what's happening. And here's a great case in point. We don't know what this group is called, right? There's Al-Sunnah Wajamah, Al-Shabaab, the Swahili Sunnah. We need to have more clarity about what's happening in Northern Mozambique. This is an incredibly serious development in an important country. And so I wanted to bring together the foremost experts to this panel this morning to help us think through the challenges, try to get some ground truth, and then try together to think about where this may go. I'm really proud that we have, I think, the brain trust. We have some of the smartest experts on this issue today. I, I wish that we had, uh, we weren't able to have almost everyone we wanted. Jasmine Operman wasn't able to come, and uh, uh, Eric Morier Gunier, and Joe Hanlon, and Simone Heisman, but essentially, this is, these are the people that I go to every day to try to understand what's happening. And so I think it's a real benefit to all of us to have them here in one room. So we have to have, I think, very humble aspirations here. We're not going to solve the problem in northern Mozambique today. But we are going to work together to try to develop a common picture, to identify information and analytic gaps, and to discuss opportunities to address this growing threat. You know, the first step is always trying to understand what we're facing. And it's a task that has become very urgent in recent weeks with, with the most deadly attacks so far of 16 people dead, with a conversation, at least some reporting that the Islamic State has claimed credit. I know we're going to talk a lot about that at some point today. Um, so we're going to have a lot to unpack this morning, but I think we're in really good hands. Now, I know you didn't come to hear me blabber on, so I am really excited to, uh, to uh, bring up our keynote speaker. Uh, Stephanie Amato is, going, is the Office Director for Southern Africa at uh, the Department of State. She is a career Foreign Service Officer with 28 years of government service. Prior to this current post, she served in New York, Nairobi, Brasilia, Vienna, Pretoria, London, and of course, Maputo. So please join me in welcoming Stephanie to the podium. Thank you, Judd, and good morning. I would like to take a moment, actually, to recognize the 75th anniversary, anniversary today of D-Day in Normandy and the global sacrifice to that effort. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me to open this important program, which brings together a distinguished group of practitioners to facilitate a better understanding of the growing violent extremist threat in northern Mozambique. As Jed noted, I was posted to Mozambique nearly 25 years ago and was privileged to have been able to engage in the democratization process following Mozambique's historic first peace agreement. Mozambique was the first home of one of my daughters, and Portuguese was her first language. 
I care deeply about Mozambique, both its success in moving forward with its current peace process and in containing the growing threat in northern Mozambique. Let me begin with a few remarks on the U.S.-Mozambique bilateral relationship, which is strong. President Nusi has signaled both verbally and through his actions that he values Mozambique's partnership with the United States. Thanks in large part to his leadership, we have been able to accelerate our cooperation in many areas of shared concern. Four main areas are critical to, for both U.S. interests and Mozambique's development. First, strengthening democracy and governance, improving health and education, fostering sustainable economic growth, trade and investment, and building Mozambique's capacity to counter violent extremism and transnational crimes, including trafficking of persons, narcotics, and wildlife. The United States is the top bilateral donor to Mozambique, averaging 450 million annually for the past three years for a total of $4.3 billion over the past decade in assistance to Mozambique in these and other areas. The vast majority of our assistance is in health, primarily through ongoing support in the fight against HIV and AIDS through the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. The United States has also provided sustained support both in implementing the democratization, demilitarization, demobilization, and reintegration envisioned in Mozambique's peace process and in strengthening democratic norms and institutions, which will be critical to overcoming decades of political conflict. We are very pleased with this week's announcement that President Nusi and Usufu Momadi, President of the main opposition party, Renamo, have defined a timeline for the remaining steps to secure a lasting peace. First, the initiation of the DDR process in June, the return and reintegration of Renamo combatants into their communities, the signing of a definitive cessation of military hostilities in July, and finally, the signing of a definitive peace agreement in August. As an example of how much the United States cares about the success of this peace process, Ambassador Dean Pittman, who is here today, served as co-chair of the International Contact Group for the peace process, a role in which his successor, Ambassador Dennis Hearn, continues. At the same time, a large U.S. delegation will head to Maputo later this month to participate in the Corporate Council on Africa's U.S.-Africa Business Summit, hosted by the government of Mozambique. Deputy Secretary of Commerce Karen Kelly will lead the U.S. delegation, which will also include USAID Administrator Mark Green and the Department of State's Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, Tibor Naj. The event will bring together businesses and government leaders with the aim of expanding trade and investment between the United States and Africa. I'd like to turn now to focus my remarks on the topic of today's program, Understanding Violent Extremism in Northern Mozambique which is particularly timely due to this week's attack claimed as the work of an ISIS affiliate. It's been nearly two years since Mozambique experienced its first terrorist attack, as Judd noted, on October 5, 2017, when a group of primarily homegrown Islamic extremists attacked police targets in Mosamboa de Praia in Mozambique's northernmost province of Cabo Delgado. Since then, the group has carried out nearly daily attacks that have spread across eight districts of the province. What began as attacks on government security forces and facilities soon shifted to brazen attacks on civilian targets. Hundreds, if not thousands, of homes have been burned, and killings of civilians appear to have been indiscriminate and have included beheadings, with women and children among the victims. Situated in the far northeastern corner of the country, bordering Tanzania, and 1,500 miles from the capital city of Maputo, 
Cabo Delgado is not only geographically isolated, but also politically, economically, and socially distant from the rest of Mozambique. Access to government services is lacking, and international donors, including the United States and development organizations, have not had much presence or programming in Cabo Delgado, although that is beginning to shift. Cabo Delgado province is also home to one of the world's largest natural gas discoveries. US, the US companies, Anandarko Petroleum and ExxonMobil Corporation, are leading international consortiums and planning to invest up to $50 billion over the next decade to develop liquefied natural gas, making it the largest US private investment in sub-Saharan Africa. With a long tradition of religious tolerance and freedom, extremist views are not common in Mozambique. Such viewpoints and rhetoric are believed to come from outside the country and by way of extremist Islamic education overseas, often provided through scholarships. This group's leaders are believed to have linkages with like-minded extremists, extremist Islamic leaders in East Africa, built during their time studying in foreign locations. To compound this challenge, geographic isolation, limited and unverified reporting, and access constraints have made it difficult to establish a clear picture of both the group itself and existing resiliencies on which to build an effective response. Confusion about the group even extends to its name, Locals originally referred to the group as Al-Shabaab, a name that in local parlance means the youth, but it has no apparent linkage with the Somali-based group of the same name. The Mozambican government prefers to use the term criminals, or criminals inspired by religious ideology, rather than referring to the group by a specific name. Some emphasize the group's unclear motives and downplay the extreme religious foundations even further by labeling them an insurgency. Others call the group Alu Sunno Wajama, meaning followers of the Sunni tradition and unity. What we do know is that youth disenfranchisement, which leads to their susceptibility to recruitment by violent extremist organizations, more than ideology or religious divisions, is certainly a key factor and is widely believed to be rooted in development challenges and lack of economic opportunity. This could stem from a variety of issues, including a subpar educational system, distance from central government structures, and a feeling of abandonment by the government, or from the perception of extractive industries benefiting primarily outsiders. The government of Mozambique has increased its security presence in the affected areas with limited success. Its response has been largely reactionary and criticized as heavy-handed with tactics that have not always shown respect for human rights fueling further resentment among the local population. Instead of curtailing violent extremism, research, and unfortunately experience, have shown that state-sponsored abuse and human rights violations often exacerbate and accelerate violent extremist risks. These tactics include the forced closure of mosques and mass roundups of predominantly men, in many cases arrested only because they have beards or Muslim-sounding names. Journalists attempting to report on the attacks have also been arrested and detained. Further perceptions and increased security is to the benefit of just the LNG companies instead of local populations reinforce frustrations with the government. Because of the Mozambican government's challenge in dealing with the complexity of violent extremism, the United States and other regional and international partners have been engaged in helping the government develop a holistic security, community engagement, and communications approach. The goal is for this approach is to address governance and development issues and provide increased training to build the capabilities of Mozambican security forces. To this end, interagency, multi multidisciplinary US government 
teams, as well as specialized experts, have traveled to Mozambique to consult widely and to assess the situation and make recommendations for increased U.S. engagement and programmatic assistance in Cabo Delgado. As a result of these assessments, an extensive list of recommended interventions has been developed. Among those already moving forward are a U.S. government grant program to promote constructive dialogue between local residents and youth, religious leaders, and security forces in the province through the Islamic Council, a baseline assessment and strategic communications program to, assess, to assist key stakeholders with more effective youth messaging and outreach, the provision of U.S. logistics and communications advisors to support the Mozambican government's efforts, and programs to build the capacity of civilian law enforcement to engage with effective communities and investigate suspected acts of terrorism. I would like to take a few moments to underscore that further complicating the situation in Mozambique are the two devastating cyclones, which hit the Mozambican coast on March 15 and April 25, and caused extensive destru destruction and loss of lives and livelihoods. Cyclone Kenneth made landfall in Cabo Delgado as a Category 4 cyclone. It has caused major devastation in both Cabo Delgado and Nampula provinces and where the extremist plague districts of Kisango, Masamoya, and Ibo Island are located. The United States recently contributed $68 million in emergency assistance and logistics support to Mozambique in the immediate aftermath of these cyclones and is exploring additional resources for the longer-term recovery effort. International support is needed to restore health, education, and other vital services. The importance of disaster response activities in Cabo Delgado is amplified by the need to avoid fueling further recruitment by the violent extremist group. We are working closely with like-minded international partners in Maputo and our respective capitals, encouraging assistance to the government of Mozambique, both in cyclone recovery and reconstruction efforts, and to counter the violent extremist threat and support to the recovery efforts. While, as noted earlier, a number of interventions are moving forward, there are still significant gaps in our understanding of the violent extremist activities in northern Mozambique. There is not a consensus among experts about the key drivers of violent extremism in northern Mozambique, or elsewhere for that matter. Complicating the situation further in Mozambique, we have not yet been able to clearly identify who comprises the groups or, who, or to fully explain their motivations, objectives, recruitment, and funding sources. The group's lack of clear, consistent face or message has not been and, and, and have, has not articulated demands. However, this week marks the first claim of responsibility for the attack by any group. So it is important to remember that this, that this is an unverified claim and it should not be taken as fact. Some describe the members as a hidden or ghost enemy, which many believe to be the youth from the affected villages and therefore indistinguishable from the local population. It is my hope that the programs like this one at CSIS today will bring together the collective wisdom of experts like you from diverse backgrounds to, to facilitate an exchange to develop a better understanding of the problem set and determine possible additional responses. Thank you for hosting this event and for, and for inviting me and other U.S. government colleagues to participate. I look forward to what I'm sure will be a very interesting and robust discussion today and hearing the recommendations that emerge. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, it is my privilege to bring up the first panel that is going to be moderated by uh, a good friend of mine and our newest uh, affiliate here at CSIS, uh, Emily Colombo. Panelist.
Good morning, everyone, and thank you again for joining us today as we discuss the situation in northern Mozambique. This panel, our first panel of the day, will be uh, examining the social, political, and religious drivers of the conflict. Our second panel will focus more on the external factors in the conflict and uh, government efforts at mitigating um, some of the violence. So we will begin with Dr. Alex Vines, who joins us from Chatham House, and he will provide us with an overview of Mozambique's socio-political history and context. So, over to you. Good. Turn the mic on. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so my job is to kind of set the scene. You have got two really uh, deep experts with me on northern Mozambique. Uh, but I wanted to kind of contextualize how this is actually fitting in and to, to build on what Stephanie in her opening remarks has really highlighted in terms of we don't know a lot. This is a really foggy area. I mean, more foggy than foggy bottom, maybe, you know. Um, uh, and that's the problem. That's why we're having the meeting today. And uh, Judd has been brilliant by bringing uh, so many people together on Mozambique. There hasn't been a meeting this size on Mozambique since 92, 93, long time ago. So um, the first is that uh, Mozambique is, is very long as a country, as you can see from uh, Ravuma to Maputo. Uh, and um, it, you, know, you need to remember that scale really matters here. There's enormous diversity. Uh, and in the history of Mozambique, uh, state building um, you know, is an ongoing process. The, the, the Portuguese managed uh, Mozambique uh, in, in the colonial period um, through, through regions that were designed to service uh, economies both inside the regions themselves, like in Zambezia, uh, but also to service the countries next door. So you had railway lines and roads that went east-west, not north-south. And this is reflected still today, uh, even in sport in Mozambique, uh, you have regional tournaments, but it's very difficult to have a national one. And that's partly to do with money, but it's also slightly influenced by, 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 by the history. So uh, some historians um, have highlighted that actually Mozambique is particularly different in that it's about a coalition of regions more than a, a, a coherent state. And so understanding regional politics and local politics is really important. Certainly the issue that came clear to my mind when uh, working on Mozambique during its civil war, a lot of the politics was very local uh, and regional. And what you understood in Maputo as a diplomat did not give you an insight at all of what was happening in Niassa or Cabo Delgado. And I think this is why this crisis in the north of Mozambique has caught externals and people in Maputo by surprise. The roots to this are actually predictable when looking back. And the research that we've been seeing about what suddenly appeared uh, virulently 18 months ago as a violent form of attacks, the roots go back to at least 2,000 in terms of the religious side of these things. Um, work that uh, some academics have been doing in the archives in Palma, for example, show already by 2001, 2002, um, the established um, uh, faith groups worried about cults and other things that were becoming uh, 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 more aggressive 
in a peaceful way at that time. I've spoken to business investors in the north of the country, particularly involved in the ruby trade, that also said that they were reporting to the security forces their deep unease by 2003 that there were real problems and that there needed to be better intelligence and vigilance. So when you look back, already there were signs of problems um, and a great deal of complacency. Even by myself, to be honest, I uh, remember saying that's not the main concern. It's more about other politics in Mozambique, particularly the one with the main opposition party, RUNAMO. So uh, groupthink has been a problem, elite groupthink, both internationally but also uh, inside Mozambique with the elite. Um, this first slide here is about the population trends. And um, the main point, I think, to make is that Mozambique's demographics are changing. Uh, the 15th of uh, May this year, uh, the National Statistics Institute of Mozambique uh, issued the 2017 National Census. It tells us a few things that are important to highlight that are relevant for today's conversation. Um, the first is that Mozambique's population is growing quite significantly. We know that. It's just under 30 million now, so gathering an average rate of 2.8%. Uh, and what you do see is the demographics in the countries north of the, the, the countries, the provinces uh, the, uh, of central and northern Mozambique, uh, make up now the majority of, of, of the population. 67% of Mozambicans uh, live in either Manica, Safala, and further north. So historically, the real heartland of Frelimo, the far south, is actually slightly declining, 1% according to the statistics. For example, that's Maputo City, Maputo. Now, this is relevant in terms of Cabo de Gado. Because uh, not only is it that the north uh, is growing in population, um, but it is uh, where opposition politics is strengthening also. And that uh, even though Cabo Delgado historically has been a stronghold of Frelimo, particularly because of the uh, Maconde ethnic group, and historically Frelimo, the party of government that's been in, uh, in charge of government since 1975, uh, there's been an alliance of the far south and the far north. But this is fragmenting, and I will come back with another slide in a moment. So demographics really matter. And although you are having uh, some improvement in uh, life expectancy and a decline in infant mortality, inequality is really significantly growing. So um, actually, inequality, as you'll see in the next slide, is declining in the far south. And there have been some real good gains there. You're finding that that isn't happening in central and northern Mozambique. And I think that helps partly also to explain uh, some of the things that we're going to hear about uh, in the next presentation. So um, here you have the poverty trends. Now, the poverty data, um, I haven't had an, uh, uh, the data is um, mixed. And here, um, there are, for example, Tet province. You can see um, there's a significant decline. But I think that's all to do with enclavism around the mining industry, uh, coal mining in particular. Um, and that's, I think, a salutary warning, because there have been real problems in Tet also with what is developing in northern Mozambique. The scenario I think that we will have to really consider is enclave uh, gas production in northern Mozambique. So there will be an enclave protected. There'll be an airstrip. They'll be flying in up to 20,000 workers. Uh, it will be safe within that enclave. But what happens outside? 
There are plenty of other examples in the world, but this is the sort of thing that the Sassata Anadarko, if that deal goes through, Total or Exxon, certainly any and others are going to have to consider. And so um, real deep thinking about enclavism, which is a long history in Mozambique. I'm not a historian. We could talk about Prazus and all sorts of other things if you want. These are enclaves. Uh, Yusuf knows much better about them than myself. But this seems to be a dangerous repeat of Mozambican history that may not end well if we don't think really deeply about it. Hence, so important that we're talking about this today. So let's move on because I don't know how many minutes I've got left. And uh, this is a, um, I have two minutes left. So let me um, just make this point. This slide is really quite important because it shows the uh, recent um, local elections and the pattern that is occurring. So there were local elections last year, the results. And it shows a significant drop of support in the northern provinces, which includes Cabo Delgado. So bear in mind, although part of Cabo Delgado is, is certainly uh, a heartland of Frelimo, it's, uh, with, with a Maconde core, the frustration at the party of government, Frelimo, is deepening and escalating very quickly. And so um, this ties into, uh, it, this is an indicator of the deep frustration that we heard in, the, uh, in Stephanie's uh, opening remarks about the lack of service delivery, the lack of things that the Mozambican government are doing. The reality is parts of northern Mozambique have never seen anything really positive from the Mozambican government. They have been neglected or they have been dominated by patrimonial politics. And so this steep sense of inequality is growing. And that may well reflect in the elections this year. I do have a fear about the quality of the elections that are scheduled in Mozambique in October. And it is something that the international community needs to be vigilant about. And I know I've run out of time. So um, two final points. One is that national, uh, natural resource endowments have contributed to growing frustrations be they rubies, and we'll hear about that. But anticipation of the enormous amounts of gas that is going to come out of north of Mozambique was a driver, including for elite fragmentation and competition within Frelimo. And that has also distracted from thinking about some of the developmental requirements in northern Mozambique. So again, the lack of institutions and lack of accountable processes are feeding into this crisis in the north. And um, finally, I will just go to this slide, which is to pave the way for the others. There are a variety of different theories going about what's actually happening in Cabo Delgado. And so there are various clusters of schools of thought. And so you've got the Jihadi International one, you've got the Criminality Herian Coast one, you've got local Islam, and one on pop, pop, poverty and popular uprising. None of them are wrong, but in this uh, murky, gray reality that we're in, I suspect that they're all partly mixed together. So we have a toxic mix of all of these things contributing as drivers. So we should not be over-reductionist, is my suggestion. And I think uh, the rest of the panel will explore more deeply on these things. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Vines, for the introduction and overview. Next, we'll turn to Dr. Lizette Bonnet, Bonnete, Bonnete, who will join us from the University of West Indies and will de delve more deeply into Mozambique's um, Islam, excuse me, um, 
to the role, excuse me. To the role of Islam. Of Islam in Mozambique. <clears throat> Thank you. Okay, my name is uh, Dr. Lazar Bonate. Um, I'm a Mozambican and I worked at Eduardo Mondrano University for 20 years. Now I'm working at the University of the West Indies for some years, for three years, but we'll see how it goes. Anyway, I, I started um, researching um, on Islam in Mozambique, and in particular in North Mozambique in 1997, and I did several MAs and one PhD on that. Uh, and then I've been teaching and researching on that. So that local Islam point three is not my idea, um, something. Or well, what I'm trying to say here is that um, some of the issues that I would like to address uh, with regard, so to, so to speak, local Islam. First thing is that Islam in Northern Mozambique started more or less in the eighth century with the coming of the traders through Indian Ocean networks. And Northern Mozambique was part of the Swahili trading and also religious and cultural network for years, for, for centuries actually, and um, Kimwani is one of the languages that is the southern dialect of Swahili, and people living along Rovuma river shores actually are Swahili speakers, but in any ways, every time when there was a change in religion, religious practices or discourses, Elsewhere on East African coast, they would reverberate in Mozambique. So every time something changed, it would change also in Mozambique. Mozambicans went to study to Comoros, to Zanzibar, to Mombasa, and they had very close, close relations, not only religiously, culturally, linguistically, in terms of economic relations, but also in terms of kinship relations. So they, they do have a lot of family members there. And that continued for centuries, and every time something changed in Islam, it would create some kind of conflict in, in, in northern Mozambique, as, as elsewhere in, on the Swahili coast, or, or the Comoros, or even um, um, northwestern Madagascar, which was also part of the complex, and northern Mozambicans do have uh, uh, kinship relations with some of the uh, Swahili there. Um, so, um, why Mozambique and Muslims have conflicts? They have the same thing like everywhere in the world, but in particular because they don't have this kind of centralized big, big state, they didn't have throughout history. So they were small, small sheikhdans, small sultanates along the coast, and in particular in Cap Delgado, there were 10 of them along the coast, and those on the islands are also separate sultanates and sheikhdams. That's how it worked, yeah. And, um, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a change into Sufi orders from, so to speak, uh, elite-dominated Islam. And by that, I mean that because uh, Northern Mozambique and elite uh, Muslims were linked to the Swahili elites. Yeah, so uh, uh, religion kind of was a little bit elitist in that sense, but Sufi orders, of course, were much more um, uh, integrated. They would involve much more um, ordinary people, and there was a, quite a resistance to that kind of change, and um, they were uh, literal physical assaults, and people really fought for that. It's because Islam doesn't have uh, an official clergy, and of course, um, in order to gain followers, they have to assert before the, uh, the normal people that they have knowledge and authority and gain reputation, yeah. Um, so, 
Afterwards, in the 1950s, so to speak, Islamists came to Mozambique. But I, when I say came, it means that the idea came, but who actually uh, brought were, were local people, Mozambicans. Brought in the sense that either they went somewhere and heard, or the, somebody came and heard, or they, they just understood it through conversations. But one point that was addressed here, uh, oftentimes when they talk about capital the crisis, saying that um, the ideas were brought to Mozambicans because they don't know how. They know everything, everything. When I was doing field work in 1998, 99, they knew about bombings in Tanzania, and they had opinions, very strong opinions about that. They knew, they knew about protagonists that were being chased after by CIA. Um, they knew about um, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, a lot of people were quite sympathetic. Um, but it never, I, I mean, people knew about a lot of things. They look poor, they look illiterate, disheveled, or whatever, but they knew everything when it comes to Islam because they talk about it all the time. And that is the habitus, in a sense, and that is a long durée relationship they have with Islam. They always talk about it, they know about, about everything that is going on. So, um, therefore, it's easy to say that because Mozambicans didn't know anything and suddenly they went abroad and they brought ideas, they became enlightened and they became Islamists. Now they always were, they always argued about things, they fought. Actually during colonial times when Islamists came and, uh, and besides that, before that even when the Sufi orders um, heads were changing, um, Northern Mozambicans always fought about the succession of Sufi orders leadership. And at, at some point, they had such a huge fight that um, Portuguese had to send military intervention. They imprisoned 20, 30 people. And the, the deposition at the trials involved hundreds of people. And that's all registered in the archives. And in the 1950s, 60s, when the, so to speak, Wahhabis came, and Wahhabis, by that I mean that people went somewhere, studied, came back with ideas that uh, things have to, to change in the local practice of Islam, and then they started arguing about it, talking about it in khutbahs on the Friday prayers and so forth. Then they opened their own school, and they would start teaching things that's their own way. And a lot of people resisted because it never changes normally. People always resist and they fight. And they fight, it's not just verbal, sometimes it's very physical, yeah. And so, but that coincided with the liberation war and the Portuguese decided that they have to side with the Sufi orders in order, because Sufi orders was the majority of Muslims in Northern Mozambique and Northern Mozambique was the hub of the liberation war. So Portuguese decided they should side with Sufi orders, get some support from Sufi leadership, so they would um, disenchant Muslims from engagement with the liberation war. Yeah? And um, they also provided with Hajj and uh, other facilities going to Portugal, and of course, uh, translation of the uh, basic uh, texts and so forth. But what happened after independence is that I think that Frilimu took this, uh, first of all, I didn't know much about Islam. Uh, I don't know how, but they made a lot of mistakes uh, with regard to Muslims. One of the things was that 
they um, offered um, national um, umbrella organization headship or leadership to someone from the south who was mixed race, who was not, um, he was not local. So it, he was local, but it was not conceived as you know this representative of long-term historical Islam by Northern Mozambicans. Yeah. So just to because I already run out of time, I want to say that um, I don't know whether the initial um, initial attack on Muslim by the prior prisons were motivated by Islam. I think they were motivated by the fact that some youth was taken to prison because some sheikh complained about it. And the sheikh is the one that is a fundamentalist sheikh. He's a fundamentalist sheikh. Youth, I think, was much more maybe hot-headed, but I don't think they were fundamentalists, actually. Yeah. The situation uh, reversed when it was presented. Yeah. Second, it, it might be it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. It started as a, some kind of conflict, and then it evolved into this idea of Islamic terrorism. And now, finally, ISIS decided, OK, these people are fighting. Everybody's talking about, let's just take them in. Yeah? So I think that might be. And Mozambicans had, th that region was Islamized since 8th century. For centuries, they had all kind of fights, all kind of arguments, pro, against, changes. And uh, they were radical in the 19th century because they were involved in slave trade, they were involved in uh, jihad wars. And during the liberation wars, they were radical also because they supported pro and contra. During the civil wars, some of them supported Renamo, and actually it is a, a kind of a way of showing discontent with uh, Frelimo is just leaving and going to Renamo. But I think that now they are so disappointed in Renamo, they don't want to go any, anymore there. That's why they are taking things into their own hands, because there is no alternative to Frelimo anymore. Yeah? So, and um, the other thing I wanted uh, to say is that regional links were always there. People went back and forth, and they have kinship ties, they have labor relations. That was going on for centuries. So it's not nothing new, and it can't be a, a, an explanation for what is going on now. Uh, and the other thing is that, uh, yeah, the, the radicalization also. Every time Islam changed, practices changed, people discussed. But in terms of uh, contemporary jihadi movement, they knew about it. I was there in the 1998, 99, when the bombing in Tanzania, and they knew everything. They knew about Al-Qaeda, about Twin Towers. Some of them were very sympathetic to those people. But that never led them to do anything about it. Yeah, because they always had some alternative. When they were angry, they would go to Renamo, punish Frilimu, yeah? They would go to Tanzania, they would go to, to Comoros, they would do a lot of other things. So I don't think that this is something that um, they envisioned as a jihadi movement or joining some uh, international things. They knew about them, and they, if they wanted to join, they would join before. But they didn't join before. So if they join now, the situation is really dire. They don't know where to go, whom to talk, and where to look for, so to speak, justice and legality, because they're being pressured by all sides, by all sides, by 
by international businesses that are taking away their land, their livelihood, and everything. And there's a majority Muslim in, on the coast. It's like maybe 90% of the population is Muslim. It's not Islam that came today. It's Islam of the nine centuries, maybe. Yeah. So we have to be very careful about that. Thank you. Thank you so much for the overview. Um, I think you've introduced a lot of ideas that we haven't really considered before, and I appreciate that. Um, next, we'll turn to Dr. Youssef Adam, who joins us from the University of Eduardo Madeleine to talk a little bit more about the insurgency itself. OK, thank you. Good morning. I'm uh, happy to be invited uh, to this conference. And I'm going to talk about uh, peace, war, and sustainable development in uh, Cabo Delgado. Probably it wouldn't be uh, wrong to speak about northern Mozambique, but that would mean that we have to bring into equation uh, uh, Niasa, because it is, uh, and we're speaking about a region which has been uh, uh, a theater of uh, many conflicts and problems, uh, not only for Africa, but for, uh, I would say, for the world. Uh, if you look at the reports written by, in the 19th century, by Mr. Joseph Thompson, notes on the basin of River Ruvuma, uh, he brings already problems and uh, uh, difficulties one would have with the exploitation of coal which still is a, is a problem. Then we have uh, uh, letters by the consul, uh, uh, the British consul in Mozambique in 1882, and he also calls the attention of the British government and other readers about uh, what he found out in his journeys in the district west of Cabo Delgado and where he calls the attention of the importance of this region in producing and exporting slaves and the great difficulties in dealing with uh, local chiefs. And some of those chiefs uh, still exist in the sense they have died, but uh, we're speaking about, uh, we, we're speaking about uh, uh, forms of government which uh, which maintain, uh, uh, maintain the continuity of, uh, of power. Uh, when uh, someone phoned me on the 4th of October, uh, 17 months ago, uh, telling me, look, uh, there has been an attack in Awas, I, I really got shocked because I was celebrating the was celebrating uh, peace. It was the National Peace Day. And uh, the other part of my head said, ah, the, how do you call it? Uh, the omelet is ready. Because the signs that this thing would happen were there from long ago. And why they were there from long ago? I've been working in the villages in uh, Moeda, Palma, Nangad, and uh, Musimba da Praia. Uh, my last project took about 10 years, and I was working in the, in the forest with a colleague from the uh, University of Bern. Uh, 
and uh, we found out uh, some very strange things like the villages were divided in two. Half of the village was Muslim, the other village was Christian. And there were always difficulties and struggles between these people. Uh, and then you had ethnic struggles between the Maconde, the Yao, the, the people from the coast, and the descendants of uh, the Mfekan, the, the Nguni people, which are also around there. So we are speaking of a very complicated uh, and complex uh, interaction between different groups. Uh, and then the other thing which we found out is that we were in a place where there were two governments, in fact. Mozambican government works in these remote areas from 1st of April to 20th of December, because in northern Mozambique the rain starts like clockwork. Probably it would be nice to change the, the country, have the southern part transform it into a huge ecological park and people would live in the northern parts because you have better agriculture, you have better water and so on. But these are not ideas which we can adopt. And uh, what happens in the period where the government is not there? Who rules it? People come from Tanzania and elsewhere. They go to a village and say to the chief, look, how much did the, the owner of the concession gave you this year uh, for the wood he cut, $40,000. So this guy who came from Tanzania would say, okay, I'll give you the same or double. And here you have a mattress, here you have a TV, and you can stay with my motorbike. And uh, in two months, he would cut exactly the same amount of wood and send it to Tanzania. Some would be taken in, uh, in motorbikes, other in uh, trucks. And it was very difficult to do it, but they would do it regularly. So it means that we are in a, in a place where there were already uh, big conflicts. And there is something which hasn't been talked about, which one has to have quite give it a, a lot of attention, which is the loss of land by the local people. People in the coastal areas uh, have been subjected to a pressure coming from the high-lying uh, areas of uh, Samoeda and so on, because there you have no space to do agriculture. Uh, because you have uh, the popular, how do you say, the density population, the density population density is too high, and it has taken to big changes in agriculture. They, uh, they practice no-till agriculture. Uh, the land is privately owned, although you have all these uh, laws in Mozambique which says that the land is owned by the state. But no one would say that in Maconda areas. They can say that in, in other areas. So the, uh, it was really difficult to, during these 10 years of uh, my last project with colleagues from the University of Bern. Uh, it was really uh, what we were trying to do is to create a condition where the private owners of uh, concessions, the peasants, the members of the villages and so on would, uh, 
we would have them together at the same table and see if we could uh, coordinate plans and so on. But that was very, very difficult because they, uh, the amount of wood which was cut was very difficult to monitor, but I think it was always five or six times uh, more than what they could cut officially. Uh, even the evaluations of the resources which existed were always uh, not very clear. And cooperation from authorities, uh, the administrations was terrible. I would go to them every time and say, look, send someone, come to the meetings where we meet the committees, and they would tell me, you have to tell me when I go over the time. We would tell the administrator, please, and he would send me someone, thank you, he would send someone which was the lowest ranking official in the administration, and he was waiting for me to finish the meeting and ask for his per diems. So I had to give him his per diems and per diems for his chief. So what I'm saying is that uh, there was an indication of this warlike situation in something which is called the lion fabricators. Mia Kutu has written a very nice novel about that, and we have also every day some of these problems. Uh, now and then someone is accused of being a, a owner of a lion which he makes, and this lion eats someone. But uh, the sad story is always for the lion because uh, when a lion is killed, we go there and there is no lion, there is some human being which has been killed. And the people who went to kill this lion are always uh, members of the police, uh, someone which is a uh, descendant of some old king or has linkages to power, and they go there and they cut the head of this person. And it took me a lot of time to understand why this type of homicide is practiced. So what happened is that we found out that's fine, this is, it is not considered homicide because it is done in a culturally accepted manner of defending your group of people. So this takes me to uh, something which Liazat has spoken about, which is the relationship of Limo with Islam. But I think we have to say that it was also a relationship with all the religions in the region. And Frelimo has tried to play uh, because one of the most important political parties in Mozambique is the Catholic Church. And when Frelimo had difficulties in uh, relationship with the Catholic Church, they made an alliance with the Muslims. And a lot of times this is an unholy alliance because this alliance today with the so-called uh, uh, Islamic Council is a very, very dangerous uh, move because uh, it is not, it will not consolidate democracy or whatever, but it will help to channel, funnel money from certain individuals, probably not states, and help also these people to create, okay, I'll finish. It will help them to create uh, some kind of uh, a local, uh, local clergy. So what, what we have today is that uh, we have a lot of theories about 
popular uprising, Islamic sect, which became violent and uh, whatever, uh, money which comes from the drug or the um, rubies. But who has been using the money from drugs and uh, rubies, and which is linked very much to to the these people are members of the government, are the administrators. Uh, how can you send uh, 40 tons of uh, ivory from uh, Nangad and it ends up in uh, Korea or uh, some other place in uh, in Asia? So. There is some uh, things which we have to look at, and I think which is very important to promote uh, peace and sustainable development is to give people their rights. And uh, human rights have to be uh, respected. All this, uh, what all these things which have happened show clearly that uh, this uh, situation of war is creating a huge amount of people which have been crippled, killed, uh, disappeared, and so on. And it is not only the, uh, the, sub the insurgents who do that. I think that we have to, uh, to take attention to what is done by the police, the local administration, and so on. And it's really uh, very difficult. And we have difficulties in working in the terrain. I'm trying to go back to my, the villages where I have worked, and every time I get the news that, oh, you have to be very careful. And uh, the other thing is, uh, as uh, uh, my colleague said about uh, Islam, what I want to say is in 1993, it was the first time I heard about an inhabitant of Musimboa who had gone into Somalia to fight, and he died there. So before going, he had organized his life. He had four women, three in Musimba, one in Angosh. So he didn't come back. Come back, he was dead. So his uh, goods and what he had was came to Musimba and was distributed to his family. His son, in fact, worked for Radio Mozambique. And when I was commenting this to some, uh, and I'll finish, I was commenting this to some uh, important uh, member of the government, and he told me, and I'll finish, he told me, why are you, so, why are you admiring this? Because we, we always had Muslims going and fighting in every place where there was uh, jihad and Islamic war. There were hundreds, uh, he didn't say hundreds, so there were many people who went to fight in Afghanistan against the Soviets. So I opened my mouth and I said, oh, I didn't know about it. So he said, my boy, you have to continue studying your, uh, your issues. So thank you, and I will continue studying my issues. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Adam, for that additional on-the-ground context for this problem we have in Gabu Vilgabu. Um, now I would like to take the opportunity to ask a follow-up question to all three of the panelists. You've all provided us with um, a great historical context, religious context, and on-the-ground truth and history on the, on the factors that have led to the conflict we have today. And I wonder how unique are these factors and circumstances to Gabu Vilgabu, or can we find them in other parts of Mozambique? Is, is there a potential for this group to expand geographically outside Gabu Vilgabu? Would they find support in other parts 
of Mozambique. Look, let, let me start, and it's not by coincidence then that this slide is up on, on, on the screen here. Um, there are protests and violence of different types taking place, popping up across Mozambique, yes? They're not virulent quite in the way that we're having in Cabo Delgado. Obviously, you've got the old conflict also uh, with the main party of opposition, Renamo. Uh, again, Stephanie mentioned the US government hope that that deal will stick now. Uh, with a final um, treaty between Renamo and, and Frelimo in, in, in August. I hope it does. Um, for the very reason that Mozambique can't afford more violent mushrooms popping up all over the country. Mm. It just, you know, it can't multiple task. We've heard about the weakness of capacity from Yusuf, and uh, the situation in the north of Mozambique is, uh, is more virulent, is, uh, it's regional. Uh, and it's highly complicated. And so the government of Mozambique needs to be able to forensically focus with its international partners uh, and, and focus on that crisis to, to find solutions. All the good reasons in terms of governance, human rights, institutions, the things that, that Yusuf has been mentioning. So you, I think this audience needs to think of Mozambique as the weakest state in Southern Africa. That's my view. It's a very fragile entity. Uh, and this is what this is uh, indicating. And massive gas projects, like the one, the, the, the three projects that, we're, we're, that are coming uh, on stream from 2022, uh, are, you know, they are exaggerating some of these issues because you have um, an anticipation of great riches. But those riches are, as Yusuf has said, you know, are for, at the moment in the minds of an elite to, to, to get hold of. And, the, you know, the population of Cabo Delgado, those communities, where, you know, what benefit are those communities going to get from this? And so those are key drivers as I see it. Thank you. Can I come in? Okay, thank you. I think that uh, Alec is right when he says that there are mushrooms of conflict all over the, the place. And uh, when I did the count some months ago, it was about 10 districts where we already have conflicts. The big problem in Mozambique is that a lot of information is controlled. And when you get information about some kind of uh, uh, struggle in the, war, in, the, in the border between Mozambique and uh, Malawi, it is not presented as a people's revolt against the administration, but it is something which has to do with uh, bad behavior of uh, some funcionario of Alfandega, of the customs. Uh, we had the same situation in Zambezia, uh, where uh, the people's revolt took the form of uh, a sang, say, some uh, bloodsuckers uh, around there. And the thing was easily uh, resolved but because, because the the bishop of uh, this district in Zambezia was an anthropologist and a very serious man, uh, Padre Lerba Martinez, who unfortunately died uh, some weeks ago. Lerba Martinez wrote a four-paragraph uh, communique which came out in the press where he said, we know that these things are happening, but they are not acts of God or problems of uh, witch doctors. It has to do with 
administration, government, uh, lack of power of the people, and so on. Coming from someone in the clergy of a Catholic Church is very, very strong. And then I went to uh, the first seminar of, uh, um, how do you call it, uh, people which have been uh, taken out of their uh, land and uh, resettled people. And in this resettlement seminar, it was very interesting because people would say, look, we are in the same state which we were when there was uh, communal villages and socialist transition. They make a lot of promises, but they will never deliver. That's the same situation we have now. Uh, my question was to some of these elders which were there is, look, but I know that your cousin uh, is a minister of something, and your son is a very important person in the army. Why you don't go and speak to him? before coming here to lament, and why you don't organize with people of your family. So they would say, ah, no one hears us. I think there is also a very strong, uh, Alex spoke about it, but we have to take it into attention, that there is this uh, conflict between people from northern uh, Mozambique and southerners. In Palma, from the beginning, first time Mr. Gebuza was there when he was the president, uh, people spoke to him and said, we don't want Maputecos. Uh, it means we don't want people from Maputo. And if you sp speak Portuguese, oh, Maputeco is a very bad <laughs> word to, and they always said, this is our job. Uh, the important aspects in this combat, which has came out in this area, is the role of the women, of women. If you look at the photographs of any revolt, which some happened in Palma and other in this place where they are going to put uh, the LNG plants, there were these beautiful women, strong, very determined. They were in front line of them protecting the people. The elders were all in the back. They were in front confronting the police, saying, come here if you want to come. You will not pass. So I think this, there are aspects which we can use to promote peace and development and create some kind of uh, uh, negotiations for peace. I don't think we should wait for, uh, you know, for more debts and so on. And we have also to educate the investors because they, they don't take. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, with regard um, the, the what was the question I forgot already? Uh, if, the, <laughs> if the conditions in Cabo Delgado exist, oh yeah, yeah. So I do agree with Alex and the use of that the conditions are not good generally in Mozambique, but um, <clears throat> well, they they become very acute as Yusuf mentioned here during civil war, change of government, and of course other things. But nowadays, Mozambique is going through a different phase. It's an introduction of neoliberal um, system. In particular, Mozambique was never in this position of being a place of extractive industry, which implies a lot of changes, because people are used to have control of their lands through more or less traditional system. And now the lands are being taken by these big companies, Ruby and others, not only gas. But they are, several of them are, are are working, in particular in northern Mozambique, because they suddenly found out so many mines. Yeah, 
So they have to take land from people, and people are, when they had all kinds of difficulties, wars and famine and whatnot, they always had this idea that they had land. That land belonged to the clan, to lineage, to their families. Suddenly they don't have it anymore. So that, that I think, is a big problem. But with regard, um, so that's the particular situation of Cap Delgado. But generally, Mozambique is in dire situation in that sense. It's a, it's a huge change to a neoliberal order when they, they can't become squatters suddenly, because Mozambican constitution and uh, land law guarantees access of people through traditional means to land, but land is being taken away from a lot of them in a lot of places. So people are becoming squatters. They don't have where to go. They don't have jobs and other things, okay? Because land was something they would always fall back all the history of Mozambique. So with regard when you talk about this particular group, Islamic group, yeah, I don't think this group should be considered Islamic. I mean, by now I don't know whether they be finally decided to become Islamic and join somebody, yeah, Al-Qaeda or ISIS or so forth. But I don't think from the very beginning this was the group that had anything to do with those, those other groups, because if they had that, they would have declared that. It's a habit of Al-Shabaab, and Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda in Maghrib, and others to declare, but they didn't until now. So we don't know whether they are related to them or not. But finally, if ISIS decided to, to declare, it just means that ISIS recognized it was a long-going problem, and they can adopt them as you know children. But um, if Mozambican Muslims um, decide to join, and that's a very small group, because the capital guard is, uh, say, more than 50% is Muslim, and that's a very long historical Muslim. So if some of the youth decide to join those groups, then um, whether that can spread to other regions of Mozambique, yes, because uh, many Mozambicans are um, migrating and they have been migrating all around the country. And usually Northern Mozambicans are very strong in maintaining um, kinship ties, yeah, ethnic ties. So they always find each other in, in other. The other thing is Islam also present in Southern Mozambique, because Southern Mozambique was a Swahili enclave at some point, but it was taken away by the Portuguese. But then the Indians came, the Portuguese incentivized Indians, so there are a lot of Muslims living there also from like 18th century onwards that of Indian origin or mixture and then locals that were converted because of that. Um, so they might find inroads, uh, but I, I, might, I should say that in the 50s, they were, 60s, there were Mozambicans who went to Saudi Arabia, came back Wahhabis, yeah? They went as a Mozambican, went to India, came back as, so to speak, Barelwis. No, um, no not Barelwis, the, 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 the Diobandis, yeah? So we have all these people, groups, they've been there all this time. But the thing is that why this particular group, if it is in fact Islamist group, yeah? If it was a jihadi group, why they decided to, to become what they become? Um, I think it's because of the neoliberal or the extensions of the extractive industry, land, and then of course, um, more than 60% of Mozambican population is youth. So it's young people um, less than 30 years old. So these people has to be guaranteed with something 
to survive on. So I think that they had land, now they don't have. Even if they didn't have anything, they had this consciousness that they had family land and kinship land, now suddenly they, they, they don't have. So I think those are the main issues that, that might arise. Yeah, might arise. Thank you all. And as tempted as I am to keep asking my questions, I think it's a good time to turn it over to you all. So if any of you have a question for our panelists, please raise your hand and um, we'll continue our conversation more broadly. Yes, please. Uh, good morning. Um, are there any larger regional implications to what you all are discussing? Um, activities, attitudes, et cetera, that might spread to Tanzania or to Malawi or to Zambia? Uh, could you, would you mind identifying yourself? Oh, please? sure. Uh, Matthew Dever, retired Foreign Service Officer. Thank you. Um, thanks, that's a good question. The, look, it's right up in the, the, the north there, and we've talked a little bit about Tanzania. 20% uh, of the of, of arrests are Tanzanians who have been in, 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 in prison in, in Mozambique. So there's a, there is a strong Tanzanian link to this. Uh, I myself have done field research in Tanzania, trying to work out more what's happening. Because uh, one thing that is in common, I mean, you, you, you've mentioned it, is Swahili. They, they, you know, talk the same language. And there's a kind of lingua franca there, uh, including into Eastern Congo, of using Swahili on telephone communications and things like that. So um, that's one thing. So we, we're dealing here with something that has a, you know, there's Mozambican specificities that, 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 that Yusuf uh, has, has highlighted, but there are also regional specificities that are not about Mozambique. They're about also southern Tanzania. And there's a bit of billiarding in that as the Tanzanians have clamped down on radical groups uh, and preachers inside Tanzania, some of those individuals have moved across into northern Mozambique, which is weak, less, more weakly governed space, actually, bits of Cabo Delgado from what I can see from the field research that I did, the, 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 than Tanzania itself. Now, a broader problem uh, is that it's really difficult to do research in Tanzania. Um, under the Magafuli administration, even more difficult than it was, and especially for people like me. And Mozambique itself, I mean, the areas we're talking about are also really difficult to do research now. The Mozambican government will not allow journalists in, they arrest people, they harass them, and it's a pretty similar picture on the uh, north of the Ravuma too. So this is making our jobs as analysts really much more difficult um, because of the, the difficulties. Uh, the Malawians are worried that this thing could spread in their direction and there are concerns, Mozambican government officials have told me, there are concerns about uh, sleeping cells in Nyasa province. As Yusuf said, we should look at this area also in terms of not just Cabo Delgado but Nyasa. So there are, you're, you're right, there are dangers that this thing could spread a bit further. But my own instinct is that to really understand this problem in northern Mozambique needs better research, better discussion about the far south of Tanzania. Because there is, it, it's a region basically. Don't think of the Ravuma River as, as, a, as a complete barrier. Okay, so yeah, uh, using this map, you can see that Mozambique is a very long country, 
but it encompasses a lot of regional divisions. So all the ethnic groups in the neighboring countries, they are like half and half, half in Mozambique, half in Malawi, half in Tanzania, half in South Africa, and so forth. So it's a very, very strong uh, link, cultural, linguistic, and also family-wise. People just go back and forth, sell stuff every day, you know, visit family and so forth. So um, I don't know about sleeping cells. I would say that um, people, when they get angry, and they're already Muslims, and Nyasa is very much linked both to Tanzania and to Mozambique. So, uh, so both to Malawi and uh, and Tanzania. So if they decide to join, they will join because, as I said, it, they have kinship ties. They, they historically, uh, Muslims are all linked to each other, and the practices are being debated, discussed. Uh, and but I don't know about sleeping cells. I think that they were there was not organized thing before the 2017. But but you could organize people because people have knowledge about what's going on. They do know, even if they are villagers look poor and doesn't don't speak Portuguese and stuff. But they know everything. They listen to radio from. Um, neighboring countries, yeah, some of them speak English, they speak Swahili, they go and back, back forth, they talk a lot, they know a lot of things. Uh, that's what I know from my field work. So um, I don't know about organized sleeping cells, but I would say that some people would be motivated to join if the situation comes to that, yeah. I would like to come to the point which uh, uh, Alec uh, brought out. Okay, it's true that uh, there are Mozambicans which are ca uh, Tanzanians which have been captured in Mozambique. But according to the Mozambican army, each time they have an engagement with uh, some of these so-called rebel groups, they also um, capture 20 or 30 uh, Tanzanians who are fighting in the Mozambican side. <laughs> But then when I asked them, but are you sure they are Tanzanians? Weren't they born in Mozambique or their parents had uh, migrated to Tanzania and so on? And the reply was, I am a soldier. I am not an anthropologist, so you go and check it out. <laughs> so I, 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 I agree, and, uh, but it's, uh, it, we have a lot of times with certain individuals in the government, we have nice, uh, how do you say, we can speak to them. And we had this before, and we're losing it. And I think we have to restore that and have also specific uh, research done in these areas to help uh, and develop uh, some kind of uh, communications. Uh, the Army has, at this moment, some units which have been trained in social sciences or whatever, and they do some talks with the with the local people, but I think that they are a bit out because they generally talk to the rich doctors and so on, but uh, there are other important uh, people to whom, with whom they should work. Uh, uh, there are also presents. Uh, there are so many things reported, like there is a very important uh, sheikh uh, which came from southern uh, Congo which is uh, captured by the Mozambican army. But till now, they haven't shown us the person, they haven't given us his name or you know, his history, so we could uh, go farther into it. 
So lack of information and control of information is a serious problem. But as a researcher, we, researchers, we have to find ways out. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, any other questions, please? Yes. And if you could identify yourself too, please. Yeah, my name is Alex Serrano and I work for a non-profit. I've uh, worked in Mozambique for quite a, a long time and lived there in the northern Mozambique for about seven years. My question is, it seems like this is just a symptom of a larger and much bigger problem the, in terms of both governments and use of, you know, frankly, public resources uh, and, and really the, the impunity uh, of a lot of, of people. Uh, and I think now it's the, the chickens are coming to roast. So my question is, what would you suggest to both uh, investors there, the government, and everybody that has a stake in the country, both civil society, a way forward that maybe we could not just uh, solve this issue, or at least mitigate, but also bring more justice and more prosperity to the country? Thank you. Can I come? Um, actually, I think someone else had raised their hand as well. So if you want to ask your question, and then our panelists can address both. Thank you. Hello, Julie Kim from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Uh, thank you to the panelists. I thought that was a very comprehensive review of the drivers. Um, and I, I was very interested in the combination of different perspectives and acknowledging that not a lot is known, but could you each speak to what you speculate are the objectives of the group or groups in terms of what they would like to see result in their environments, in the context there, um, that they would like to see as an outcome of, of the violence? Thank you for your question, but I would like to thank the colleague who spoke before. I agree with you, the chickens have come to roost and we have to do something. And uh, it has to be, we have to change and uh, we have also to bring aboard the investors and everyone which is trying to work in that situation. And generally a lot of those people who arrive now, they are not prepared to hear. And uh, then you have a lot of people looking for salaries and uh, positions, and so they sing the song of those who, who pay them. Uh, that is uh, really clear. About uh, the, the, the second question, uh, I, I think that... Yeah, they have, uh, these groups have an objective which is they want to have their, uh, how do you say, their voice heard. And this is very important. I was doing field work in 1978 with Professor Alan Isaacman in Cap Delgado, and we went to the southern parts of the province, where there is also a lot of uh, resentment and rebellion and so on going on. And uh, we were asking people about their life studies and so on. They just, the elders just said, stop this nonsense. We want to speak. And he said, why? No, you come from Maputo, so you belong to the government. So you have to hear what we want to say. And what they wanted to say, A was, look, we were jailed by the Portuguese in 64. We came out of jail in 75. 
and Frelimo came again and sent us to jail saying we were working together with the Portuguese army. We want our rights restored. Uh, five years ago, when uh, Nussi was running for president, there was someone in Facebook telling stories about where he was going. So I spotted it, and I thought that ah, this guy is doing work for, for Nussi, and I told him, look, tell the, the candidate to go to the southern districts of Cabo Delgado, speak to the, the elders, and ask for pardon of you know, any errors they have committed to these uh, communities. And the situation uh, in the beginning, 74, 75 in Cabo Delgado, was pathetic. Uh, I, had, I only learned when I, I married someone from Ibu Island, and uh, my wife was telling me, look, uh, I, I couldn't, uh, I went to school in the morning, in the afternoon I went to the madrasa. And one day someone, which I knew was a colleague of mine in the newspaper world, he went there and told the kids, you shouldn't study Arabic because you are going to have problems. Because the Arabs write from the left to the right. And in Portuguese, you write from right to the left. So your, your head will be complicated and you will become uh, incapacitated to think. This is very stupid to say to some six, seven-year-old kid. And, uh, and I asked Kabila, but did you believe it? She said, yes, when I, have six, I was six years old, I believed in that. So it means that you have, uh, this is an anecdote, and, uh, but I think we have to be really uh, quite careful and trying to uh, solve these problems. Uh, Professor John Markham, uh, wrote a book about Mozambique, which was published after his death. And this book brings us some very important points and uh, haven't been analyzed about uh, the Biafrization of uh, certain areas in Mozambique. Probably one of these days we will have some group which will try to, uh, to yeah, separate certain areas or, or make some alliances over the border. We always forget about the liaisons between southern Tanzania and uh, northern Mozambique. <clears throat> okay, so just going back again to the, the same point, it doesn't matter. I, my point, I, I, I know many people might not agree, but I think it's logical that Mozambicans have this relationship historically in the documents, Portuguese and otherwise archives. Why should they stop now? They always have this relationship with the neighbors. And it's not just simple relationships, it's a family relationship, kinship relationship, all kind of grassroots relationship. So it's very easy to spread this thing, but it has to be attractive to the neighbors. So far, I think that, as Yusuf is saying, it's about hearing them. As far as I understand, they want to be heard, and they want to have some action taken that would respond to their grievances. Because only now we can say for sure if it's true that ISIS accepted them as, as part. If it's true, I'm not sure. But only now we can say, well, okay, there is some globalized group that we can pinpoint and show it's true they did accept them. But until now, we were not sure because it's really more localized than it's globalized. And localized, it's true, they want to be heard. 
That's the main thing. And, and now they decided to kill people, burn villages, and do other radical things, terrorist things, because um, they, they are having difficulties yeah, in communicating. And maybe they lost hope that Eva would be heard. And then they went embark on this, on this kind of journey. But I think that's the main thing. And uh, the other thing is that um, international organizations and governments and industries, they come and they work through government, and government does all these policies of compensating for land, for taking away livelihoods and stuff. But I think that most of the time, what there's a lot of corruption involved and so forth. So uh, we don't know what actually happened, and nobody can explain to us what actually happened with all this land taken, with uh, you know wh why all these grievances suddenly became so acute that they, that people went this way. So I think we need to address that and find out what the government have been doing, and also the response to that initial response. As far as I know, the youth went to release their friends from Mosimbo da Praia. They were called Ashabab because they were Muslim youth, but everybody in that area basically Muslim, yeah? So they are not different from other people. So, I, I, okay, it was surprising that they would take arms and went and attack the, 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 the prisons. I'm not sure that they did because they were linked to Ashabab or other organizations abroad. They did because what they said on TV, we want them to be released. Our friends were taken to prison. That was unjust and um, uh, unjustified. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm just saying that since then, there was a, everybody is trying to make a case that they were really Ashabab or they were linked to other groups. I'm not sure whether they were linked from the very beginning, um, so, but they might become linked because now they are getting much more known worldwide. Yeah? So some groups might, might be enticed to take over them or help them, so to speak. Yeah? Uh, and they might attract other people, and they might finally get organized, because until now we are not sure whether they are organized as such, and what is their objectives, and who are the members also, we are not sure about them. Yeah? So those are issues that we need to, to, to uh, so it's, it's still very foggy, we are not sure, but um, the risks are there, they might be hijacked by any of the terrorist groups, they might become part of it, maybe they are in negotiations, but we don't know, yeah? And they might uh, spread everywhere in Southern Africa. Yeah. Okay, I've got just, I think, two, two minutes. Um, so, um, the key problem uh, is the one that, we're, that right at the beginning uh, Stephanie uh, mentioned, which is that the, there doesn't seem to be at the moment coherent leaders to negotiate with. So um, this is uh, an amorphous uh, groups of individuals who um, are protesting against the establishment in a very violent form. And the establishment is uh, that the Mozambican government is not delivering in Cabo Delgado, and there's increasing frustration and anger at the lack of, of, of delivery. And, and uh, what I think is particularly striking is that the, the, the Mozambican elite at the moment, the presidency and key people around him, come from this province. They are from Cabo Delgado. 
And so even in their backyard, something particularly awful like we're seeing at the moment, Cabo Delgado is developing, shows just how uh, disconnected Mozambican elite politics is with what's happening uh, at a more grassroots level. And there lies, I think, the solutions, which is how to re-legitimize uh, diversity in Mozambique and get more accountable government um, working. The constitutional reforms with devolved governorships potentially could help that process forward. Um, so there are potential ways forward in this. But it will need the political will of whoever is the next Mozambican government. And the, and the elections in October at the moment are the next litmus test to where that trajectory is taking us. Thank you. And I think our, this concludes this panel. I want to thank our panelists once more for their insightful commentary and discussion. And I will have a five-minute break before we come back for our second panel. Thank you.
testing. If everyone could please take a seat, we'll be starting shortly. We're just going to track down our, our panelists. We'll put an APB out for uh, Greg. We're on our way. Okay, uh, we're going to start the second panel. Uh, thanks to our speakers for the first panel and exit moderating by Emily. It was, I think, really established a baseline for us to think about the drivers in the, in the conflict. And I'm uh, elated to start the second panel where we're going to do two things. I want to talk a little bit about what this group is actually doing, how it's recruiting, how it's operating, the kinds of tactics that it is um, using and how that's evolving. And then we're going to pivot to what the government of Mozambique is doing to address the specific situation and what the international community is doing or could be doing. Um, Alex, I thought, was very humble at first to talk about groupthink, and I just want to add my voice uh, to that as well. When I was working this issue, I also had uh, a, probably a more dismissive attitude about what was happening than I should have at first, and, and you can call this a little bit of penance uh, that we're having this event, because it's incredibly important, and I want to make sure that we elevate it. So without further ado, let me uh, turn to Greg Pirro, our first panelist. He and uh, Youssef have read, written some excellent papers for for the uh, African Center for Strategic Studies. I highly recommend them. And he'll talk a little bit about the group and its regional relationships and some of its tactics. Thanks, Greg. There we go. Okay. I was really impressed by the first group. Hard act to follow. Um, I want to talk a bit about what I see as the origins of the violence that we're seeing in Cabo Delgado. And, um, it's pretty clear that 
the first group that uh, took up arms were from the district of Montepoyes. And they had been recruited by a Gambian named Musa. Uh, so that gives you the idea that we already have uh, connections with, with outsiders coming in. And why were they recruited? Well, I've done studies of jihadism. I, you know, I, have, I have a book, uh, The African Jihad, Bin Laden's Quest for the Horn of Africa. I've studied the jihadist movements in, in West Africa. Um, and all of them pretty much started out after a state massacre of some sort. In Somalia, the precursor to Al-Shabaab, that's what happened there. In, Kenya, in, in Uganda, that's what happened there with the Allied uh, Democratic Front, uh, uh, killings at a protest outside a mosque. Uh, the same thing in Tanzania in, in 1998, um, uh, the mosque killings that occurred, uh, the, then the massacres in Pemba Island, which is part of Zanzibar, uh, that gave rise to jihadist uh, uh, violent movement and Boko Haram. Boko Haram was the the uh, the shoot the, the security forces open and fire on a funeral procession, and and then the extrajudicial killing of their their first leader who was a pacifist, and they turned violent after that. So what's happening in Montepoyes that people took up arms? Well, there is a company operating there. It's a UK company, uh, Gemsfield. It has its Mozambique subsidiary. But there were um, a lot of human rights abuses allegedly taking place there. And uh, they had gotten a concession of 81,000 hectares, which is the size of the District of Columbia and Fairfax County put together, to give you an idea of, of the size of the concession, uh, displacement of a lot of people, and then the, uh, um, the, the company has rights to exploit the world's largest ruby deposit in the world. And um, their security forces and Mozambican police have been putting down artisanal um, uh, miners have been working there. They've been tortured and killed, allegedly. And the Catholic Bishop of Pemba has championed them. He sent out teams to go and collect information, and then a British um, legal firm uh, um, represented them in British court, and James Field settled a few weeks ago for something like $8 million. Um, uh, and but did not admit culpability. So it's in that context, and it is that district, that these first recruits uh, um, came about, and a guy named Musa. I also want to point out that some of the Mozambican leaders identified of this group had gotten scholarships to train in Somalia. And uh, one of in my studies of jihadism in Africa is when you go study in a place like Mogadishu and Al-Shabaab is there, you're learning techniques in how to recruit, 
you know, uh, how to use arms, how to make bombs, etc. So that knowledge, well, I agree that the, the social dynamic is on the ground is uh, um, causing uh, so much discontent and, and even more importantly, we've now developed this narrative of revenge, which is really hard to, to get rid of. Uh, while that is happening, uh, you, you can also get individuals coming down, and it seems to be happening, who can channel that into certain directions. Um, troubling is recently there have been reports of an IED being used. And um, so that, that somebody had to teach that learn it and teach it. And then also there are homemade bombs being uh, used, well they're called homemade bombs, but the bombs being used which takes it to a different level too in terms of, of, of knowledge of how to carry out attacks and that. On the other hand, um, and let me just say, add one more thing in, to echo what was being said this morning is the Anadarko uh, liquid natural gas company, they really tried to come up with a good resettlement plan. It just hasn't worked well. And our informants on the ground there, Yusuf put me in contact with uh, people in local NGOs and that, and we thank God for Facebook Messenger. We can interview people uh, on the ground these days. And they were telling me that yes, a lot of the, the youth that have been, not a lot, but some of the youth who have been resettled by the Anadarko project have joined uh, this group. So there, there is all this investment going in, people losing their land, the resettlement plans, the human rights abuses that are taking place uh, are fueling this. Um, one of the, the th and I also want to make some other connections, is the local imams are saying that part of the radicalization that took place was the very influential sheikh in Mombasa, Swahili speaking sheikh, who himself was assassinated in 2012 and he was put on a terrorist list by the, by the United States. So that is Sheikh um, Abud Rogo Mohammed. And that his, the CDs with his talks, and he's on YouTube, I, I looked it up, he's, he's still on YouTube, although he's been dead for seven years now. Um, and that has been influential uh, in in Cabo Delgado is his, is his. Now I've done some field work in, coast, in Mombasa when he was still alive. And interestingly enough, some of the issues that were pertinent to the youth in coastal Kenya are similar to what's going on. People not having rights to their land, being displaced by um, outsiders investing. Um, so. It, it kind of, you kind of see how uh, Rogo could resonate with the experience of people in Cabo Delgado. And I think it prob we probably should go and just begin to analyze what he was saying and listen to, to some of his uh, sermons and that that, he, that are available on YouTube and, and see 
see you know how they how they can resonate. But that was part of his message, and part of his message was to reestablish a Swahili sultanate or a state. From remember the Swahilis. Uh, 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 are from southern Somalia, Kismayo, down to, into Nampala, uh, uh, a province in Mozambique, maybe even beyond if, if uh, it's been a long time since I studied this in history. But so there is also this ideology. And because of the radicalization that went on in Tanzania because of the 19, the 1890, 1998 killings in, um, in Dar es Salaam and the massacres that occurred after the elections in uh, Pemba Island in Tanzania. Um, uh, you, you, have, you had there the creation of these uh, radical movements. Uh, again, with a narrative of vengeance. So, so we're seeing this in the Swahili coast. And then also, the CIA recruited in among the Swahili, among the Somali and the Swahili population in Kenya to, for Mujahideen to go to Afghanistan. So we have that also, that kind of historic linkage um, that I want to talk about. Um, one of the things I wanted to highlight, though, uh, with, with the minute left I have or so, is that we need to be working with the foreign investors to make sure that they do a better job. And one of the things that they need to be put into their plans, we know that the, a lot of the money, the locals are complaining that they didn't get the money that was supposed to get and that somebody diverted it. There needs to be a monitoring of actually what takes place, an evaluation of these process, and corrective actions taking place if they're not working. And, um, and finally, I think I agree completely with Yusuf on this one, is that we, we need to have community engagement very intensely where the communities tell us what solutions they need for their problems not that we're imposing problems on that. So the formative research on this needs to be done at the community level, get them to articulate what they need, what, makes, what, what they see as peace, what they see as economic security, what they see as good education, what they see as good access to healthcare. A lot of these things they're not getting. Thanks, Greg. Uh, and before I turn to uh, Zaneda Machado uh, from Human Rights Watch, I think it's important at this point, uh, as we pivot to the government's response, to just remind everyone at the scale of what we're talking about. As I said earlier, over the last 18 months, 300 dead, uh, more than 100 attacks, thousands displaced. Uh, the group uses you know, rudimentary weapons like machetes to do vicious things like beheading. But as Greg alluded to, there is growing concern about a sophistication uh, using homemade bombs and at least one report instance of an IED. Uh, and so, I think it's fair to say that the government faces a, a pretty difficult challenge um, that is not just a security one, uh, as the panel one mentioned. And so, Zaneda, it would be wonderful to hear from you about um, your understanding of the group and particularly your, um, how you assess the government's response has been so far. 
Thank you so much, Chad. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you, everybody, for coming to listen to us. I am Mozambican myself, and I'm very excited to find out that the world is finally paying attention to what is going on there. Um, at Human Rights Watch, we, three years ago, exactly at this time uh, of the year, around May, June, um, we were drawn to a particular phenomenon in Mozambique, which was the fact that populations uh, around the area of Gorongosa, which is in the center of Mozambique, um, that was at the time uh, being affected by another conflict, which was between the government forces and the forces by the opposition forces. And yes, for those who don't know, the position in Mozambique has its own army. And uh, the forces had been deployed to the area to protect the population, yet the population was asking the government to withdraw the soldiers because they would rather live with the opposition forces in peace them having the two sides fighting. And at the time, we began to pay serious attention to the conduct of the Mozambican forces. And one of the things that we spotted them was the lack of good intelligence on the ground. The second one was the fact that they perceived local population as an enemy who was supporting the enemy. And therefore, it became an enemy as well. And the third point uh, was that the force that had been deployed lacked discipline and lacked conditions to do their work properly. So it did not surprise us that moving forward to October 2017, uh, we would start to see the same type of abuses that we had seen before in Gorongosa. And those type of abuses include indiscriminate bombings, enforced disappearances, extrajudicial killings, arbitrary arrests, and massive destructions of properties in villages where um, normal people, civilians, reside. The scale of the destruction of what happened in Gorongosa and around Sofala is not known to date, despite UN and groups like ours calling on the government to have a serious independent of, uh, investigation on what happened. I personally spoke to several women who today they don't know where their husbands are. They went to Gorongosa to the farm and disappeared and nobody knows the government has made, made, not made any visible or public effort uh, to help uh, those peoples encounter uh, their loved ones who disappeared or might have been arrested during that time. And I'm bringing this background of Gorongo so that we can understand better the level of uh, response that we are seeing from the Mozambican government in Cap Delgado as well. Please note that we are also dealing with a security force that spent many years fighting. It was previously uh, fighting for the liberation of the country, colonialism, and then later long civil war. We may discuss and the community, international community might say that there was a lot of money put into Mozambique to reform the security forces. 
uh, we do however think that a lot more could have been done, especially when it comes to training security forces on human rights issues. Um, In October 2017, when a small group of local young Muslims, uh, local known as Al-Shabaab, attracted a string of police stations in Mosimba da Praia, at that time because they wanted to release a group of friends, the government responded by deploying a massive military operation, causing two days of lockdown in the area. The real extent of the damage and casualties have never been independently verified. Government said 16 people died, most of them members of the group. But we know from local sources that lots of more people might have died, including civilians. Um, despite the government at the beginning denying that that specific attack had anything to do with Islamic fundamentalists, what we saw was an attack on people who professed the Islamic religion. Mosques were closed, religious leaders were arrested, uh, more than 300 people were detained. Following the government counterinsurgency operations, the insurgents themselves changed their methodology. They no longer attacked just uh, government positions, but they now started going to villages burn down houses, and specifically targeting community leaders who they perceive to be informants of the government forces. In response, what the government did once again was to deploy more soldiers to the ground and intelligence services to villages in Makomia, Musimba da Praia, Nangat, Kisanga and Palma districts. Access to those districts became limited to only residents of the area who are not allowed to move outside a specific time frame. And that specific time frame is worth noting, it's arbitrarily set up by the soldiers on the ground. There's no official note from the government, no official resolution on whether the country has or not a state of emergency. These decisions are taken arbitrarily, individual in, in some districts. Those people locally who challenged, who challenged those rules because they didn't hear them from any government official on television or radio, they just were imposed to them. They were reportedly beaten, <coughs> arrested, and some of them threatened to death. Journalists and non-governmental organizations, including some UN United Nations bodies, were barred from the area, making it impossible to know for certain how many pe people have uh, died so far, how many attacks have the insurgents uh, made exactly, and uh, how many people have been arrested, detained, or disappeared. In December last year, we at Human Rights Watch released a report revealing that security forces that arrived in villages several hours after the insurgents had attacked those villages, uh, they went and rounded up especially young people that they suspected were part of the insurgent group and who 
refused to operate with security forces. Those people were seen as hostile to them and taken away. Uh, some of those young men uh, told Human Rights Watch that soldiers apprehended them while they were in the forest, for example, cutting wood. Uh, they took them to barracks in the forest where they say they saw other people detained. Others described how they had been taken to military barracks, questioned overnight, and subject to torture and ill treatment before being released or sent to the police to finally face church. It's worth noting that according to the Mozambican law, military are not allowed to keep detainees. If they find anyone during confrontation, they should within 24 hours send those people to the police station to be officially charged. And again, also worth reminding that according to the Mozambican law, you must be charged with a recognizable crime within 48 hours. Some of those laws were totally violated, and to date we don't understand why, because there is no state of emergency in Mozambique as we speak, at least not an official one. <clears throat> Some of those accounts that we got from the victims were also confirmed by a senior army official who did not want to be named. And what he said at the time is that when they go to an area to, 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 to restore order uh, after an attack, it's normal uh, to be detaining the people that are there so they're questioned and it's, they are able to find out what exactly happened. Uh, some soldiers also told us that they had received orders informally to eliminate the enemy because taking them to jail was pointless and it costed the state a lot of money. You are collecting them, putting them in jail, keeping them eating, drinking, sleeping for a month even until we get to a trial. And uh, towards that process was very costly. So the best way to do is to just eliminate them on the ground. Don't even bring them here. We even received pictures of uh, selfies from soldiers at the time where they take pictures with the people that they had uh, arrested. Um, in November, uh, no, at the beginning of the year, sorry, we also reported on how security forces were intimidating, intimidating, detaining, and prosecuting journalists covering the fight um, in a clear violation of media freedom. Despite all those evidence of abuse by security force in Cap Delgado, the government has done little or nothing to change the situation. It has also rejected calls by civil society and local human rights groups to declare a state of emergency as it's required by the Constitution leaving, therefore, space for security force to operate outside the law without any accountability. Uh, I just wanted, before we finish, because again, I've left it only two minutes. I'll leave the other ones maybe when questions arise later. A point worth noting about the arbitrary arrests and how these people are kept in confinement for too many uh, months and weeks without uh, a trial or charge. Uh, in October last year, 189 people, uh, it's the first group of a much larger that uh, went to trial, uh, uh, accused of being involved in the insurgency. Um, and at the time we alerted for the fact that many of those people that had been arrested 
had nothing to do with insurgency. They were simple villagers who were cooked in between the, 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 the counter-terrorism uh, operations. Uh, recently, the trial handled, and indeed, more than half of that number were set free uh, because there was no enough evidence to prove that they had any connections with it. And one of the things that uh, preoccupies us is the fact that, and the government itself, because they have made it public, is the fact that all of those people that were released from jail following the trial have disappeared. They refused. They were, they were advised to register with their local communities. They didn't do it. And nobody knows where they are. I, I, I don't think I need to remind everybody about the issue of radicalization while you, you are in jail. Um, so I'll stop. There was a lot of more to say about stuff. Well, I'm sure we'll get to some of the questions. Yes. Thank you, Zaneda. Uh, Ambassador Pittman, uh, you served representing the United States uh, during uh, the outbreak of uh, the October 17th events and then until the end of your tenure. Uh, it's clear from what Zaneda is saying that this is the most counterproductive uh, counterinsurgency plan that a government could have. And maybe you could tell us a little bit, enlighten us a little bit about how your interactions, uh, what, what you understand about the government's approach here, and then maybe some recommendations on what the U.S. and the international community can do. Thanks, Jude. Happy to do it. I am a retired ambassador, so I am speaking as a private citizen today, but um, I'll try to give you a little bit of a sense of how we approached uh, this issue when it arose while I was uh, ambassador in Mozambique. And I'm, I'm going to apologize to my former colleagues who are still working hard at the embassy. Uh, there's nothing, I can tell you, there's nothing an ambassador loves more than hearing his successor pontificate publicly on his portfolio. So I will try to do no harm in my comments today. But I wanted to say, um, first of all, let me put a little bit this in the context of how we approach the issue. Um, we were already really concerned about the North. Um, we weren't particularly expecting uh, this to happen, but we were concerned. Uh, porous borders, uh, a lot of transnational cr criminality, the poaching, trafficking in people, trafficking in drugs, um, uh, illegal logging, illegal mining, uh, lack of governance in general was really a critical problem in the area that we've been watching very closely. And so, um, one of the things we also were concerned with, and this isn't just a Capo Delgado problem, is this really rising, this, this population growth and this rising youth population that really uh, had a lot of demands and they weren't being fulfilled. So we saw all this together, uh, put together in a way that could have caused real problems and it wasn't a leap of logic too far to assume that this kind of environment would be ripe for uh, extremist activities who would come in either to, to seek financing uh, or look for financial uh, gains or seek uh, ways to have a safe haven or in recruitment areas. So it was always, it seemed to us a logical jump that we could make on that. Um, so we'd been watching it for a while. The second thing we were, think we, we were thinking as we sort of tried to sell this, this, uh, the, these issues and try to uh, educate uh, Washington and other policymakers on how we were seeing this is we thought it would be really necessary to look at the issue as an East African issue and put Mozambique, particularly northern Mozambique, 
uh, into sort of the thinking and the analysis of East Africa because it had much more in common, I think, uh, the northern part of, of, of the country with Tanzania and, and, and the rest of East Africa that it did, quite frankly, with Southern Africa where Mozambique is normally, normally lumped. So this was something we, um, we really wanted to, to get people to think about as they were doing their planning. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that struck me as I was traveling around Southern Africa is that uh, Maputo is closer to Windhoek, Namibia than it is to Pemba. And I think that's sort of a, a, a dramatic sort of illustration of the size of the country and sort of the disconnect in a lot of ways between the South and the North. So we wanted to see if we could get the focus, uh, you know, in fact, I think it was AFRICOM or some of the analysis stopped there stop their uh, focus at the border with Mozambique and Tanzania. And this seemed to me not make a lot of sense because it was critical, and I think someone mentioned it earlier, to note that when there was a crackdown in Tanzania on poaching or drug trafficking or whatever the case, that problem just slipped across the very open and porous border into Mozambique. So this was uh, uh, sort of thought how we were approaching uh, the issue and how we were looking at the issue. Um, We've gotten attention. Uh, I think we were successful in making that case about looking at uh, Mozambique in, 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 in the context of East Africa. The cyclones and the military uh, support the U.S. gave the country during that time, I think, raised the profile, uh, as, as, uh, as, also has did, as also did the um, uh, naval exercises that the U.S. participated in, the regional naval exercises earlier in the year with, uh, with Mozambique and other regional partners. So it's on everybody's radar screen, and I think that's uh, a testament to you all being here as well today. So the four areas where we tried as the United States uh, during my tenure there to, to focus, uh, and that's what I want to talk a little quickly about, is one is on government engagement, second is on local, uh, building local capacity, military capacity, and local institution capacity, uh, international coordination, and messaging. On the government engagement, I mean, we've, we felt it was critical that the government be on board with anything we were looking to do. Um, not only be on board, but have a common understanding of how we and how they saw the, the issue. And that meant what were the causes, what was the problem, and what was likely responses. And I'll have to say, um, President Nusi was very helpful in mobilizing his team to engage with us at the embassy. Uh, we set up a uh, interagency working group that worked with the government to identify near and long-term uh, uh, solutions and, 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 and activities that we could undertake with the government uh, to see if we could make uh, some, some headway and provide some support. Um, one of the things we also agreed on, that uh, this was not solely uh, an area where a military solution would be sufficient. Uh, there were socioeconomic issues that had to be addressed as well, and, and the government in Maputo uh, agreed that this was the issue as well. Um, we also agreed and, uh, that a heavy-handed military response would be counterproductive, and certainly from our own experiences around the world, uh, you, can, you can make a problem much worse by the, your response. Uh, so that was another area we, we, we were focusing on, and we made that point repeatedly, publicly, and with the government as well. And the final point we had to, to sort of address in dealing with the government is just the natural suspicion uh, particularly in military areas of the U.S. and uh, various parts of the world. I won't say it was widespread, but there were some uh, voices within the country who suggested that the U.S. interest was, uh, had nefarious mo motivations uh, as a way to gain control or, or of the natural gas uh, discoveries in the North. So all these things had to be balanced out, and we need to be very careful in how we approach 
how we approached our engagement. But I have to say, in general, uh, at the senior leadership, President Nusi, we found an open door to our engagement and our assistance uh, and our participation in their efforts to address the problem. The second thing was on the military uh, capacity and in local institutions. I don't think it's breaking news to, to say that uh, there are problems with, um, and, and, uh, with the Mozambican military. There's a lack of capacity, um, basic lack of capacity and, and lack of transport, lack of communications equipment, lack of logistics support across the board. So these are areas that uh, you know, we saw that we thought we could be value added and provide uh, some, port, some support as well. Just being able to provide some, uh, to be, have information that they could uh, respond to and have the ability to do kinetic operations on the ground seemed to me was a critical challenge for, for the military. So we looked at how we could provide training, uh, particularly in the area, not only of countering violent extremism in general, but uh, in improving civilian military relations, uh, where, which would be critical. Because as pointed out, and as Zaneda has made very clear, the response can be worse than the, the, uh, the, the, the illness sometimes, and it can cause many more problems. Um, abusing and disrespecting the locals, petty corruption is not a way to win their trust and build the kind of partnership you need with the local community to have an effective strategy. Um, uh, I think um, Stephanie mentioned earlier that we sent a U.S. agency, a U.S. interagency team up uh, to Capitol Gato, and they traveled, quite frankly, around the country to look at ways we could identify long and uh, near-term uh, assistance that we could provide, which has, I believe, laid the groundwork and the plan for planning and assistance that's, that's ongoing. For example, um, Mozambique has become a member of PREAC, the Partnership for Regional East Africa Counterterrorism, uh, and will be eligible for assistance and inclusion in some of their mechanisms, cooperation mechanism. This is a, definitely a good thing. And we've we are developing police training opportunities and countering violent extremism and other areas that will focus directly on building greater effectiveness in the security sector. And in addition, Mozambique has reached out to his neighbors, uh, particularly Tanzania, to look at coordinating in, in, in various ways. And I think this is a critical aspect. Uh, I think uh, Alex may have mentioned this earlier, in that uh, Tanzania is particularly important to this effort um, because it is, um, Tanzania is particularly important to this area because as, 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 as we've seen, uh, what happens in Mozambique, it transfers very quickly back and forth across the border. Um, I'll jump down to international coordination and uh, just, just say very briefly, uh, the socioeconomic part of this is critical and it has been uh, imperative that we have a unified, coherent plan to address the socioeconomic issues in Capital Delgado. Uh, as Stephanie pointed out, we give about a half a billion dollars in aid to the country each year. Admittedly, we weren't focused on Capital Delgado uh, for reasons that uh, there are much larger and more populous provinces where we could have a greater impact. But since the insurgency and because of uh, the growing population in Capital Delgado as well, we've looked to refocus uh, some of our programs in health, education, uh, social programs and developing that area as well. And we've looked to uh, coordinate through our leadership among the international community that they would do the same. And frankly, we've had a very good, uh, I think, record in coordinating and working together with the 
international community, which is not always the case in countries, and I think we've had a good, a good collaboration there. And working as well with the private sector, uh, they have a big role to play, and we've coordinated with Anadarko and Exxon uh, on their efforts to, uh, uh, to develop social responsibility programs and see how we can coordinate these uh, across the board and make them complement things that we are already uh, doing as well. Uh, and finally, the, um, on the messaging side, look, the government, one of the things that the government has not been good at, and I've said this publicly to them, uh, is on messaging across the board. They have a tendency to be uh, secretive and to not share and to not make transparent or provide clarity to what their strategy is or what they're doing or what their objectives are. And this only builds greater distrust and uh, uh, among local population. So I think providing the kind of information to, the, to, to local leaders and local community about what that strategy is, how they're going about it, and what the objectives are, I think is critical to building that kind of community support. So that's an important area as well. And then we also have to look to use local voices, and this is something we did while I was there, particularly Muslim leadership and Muslim voices in the community who can speak out condemn violence on the one hand, but also offer uh, peaceful and uh, alternative messages as well. We relied very heavily, and I'm a big proponent of the community radio network through Mozambique, which is uh, one of the areas that many Mozambicans get their information, uh, their trusted information, and often in their own language. Uh, and so that's an area that's, they're, they're active in capital Gata, but around the country, and that's an area I think we should continue to, to focus, and the U.S. in our comments and our, our speeches and on our social platforms, we've tried to amplify these, these messages as well. So um, I would commend the government too, uh, just based just on in the early days, at least was when I was there, they sort of flooded the zone with a lot of ministers and officials to talk about uh, economic initiatives, to launch uh, various things. It was a lot of a PR campaign, but it was, it was I think, useful and it showed that there was a tension being paid to the region from the, from the government in Maputo. So this was all to the good as well. I just want to say one quick thing, if I can, just beyond my, I'm a little surprised to hear that um, the resettlement program hasn't been, has been part of the problem because, I mean, clearly resettlement programs are sensitive uh, and can cause issues, but I, I have to say in our, uh, at least in my three years while I was there, we paid a lot of attention to how that was going and, and our assessment was that Anadarka was trying to be as careful uh, and sensitive as they could, obviously not perfectly, but I think that they were trying to make a very serious effort to, to do a good job. And in my visits to the resettlement areas and where they were building these new houses, uh, I got the sense that things were going uh, at least not badly. And so I, I was a little surprised, Greg, just to hear that that was maybe one of the drivers uh, as well. So I've gone over my time. Uh, let me stop there and uh, turn it back to you, Jim. Great. Thank you, Ambassador Pittman. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, two questions of the panel before we open it up. Uh, let me start with the first one, which I think um, is a, a reflection of both Zaneda and Ambassador Pittman's comments. It does seem like at the top levels of the government, particularly President Nussi, there, there's a sense of the, of the urgency here and how problematic this is, and, and perhaps in this interagency, intergovernmental working group that you discussed, an understanding that this has to be more than just security, this has to be addressing social drivers. Uh, but yet, you know, what we're seeing on the ground from Zeneda contradicts that. And some of the quotes from different uh, lower level officials continues to call these uh, groups bandits and, and, and really saying things that are counterproductive that don't recognize uh, where we are. And so I guess the question for both of you, and maybe Greg, if you have thoughts, is, is this an issue that the government uh, can't 
come up with a cohesive message, a, a question about Nusi's consolidation of power, that there are different and alternative views within the government that is, that is uh, manifesting itself in different reactions, or is it an issue of capacity or perhaps something that I haven't, haven't thought of? Well, you know, one of the things, you know, I served in Mozambique in 92 to 94. I was there first sort of started my career there and kind of ended my career there. And I can say the same thing. The more I learned about Mozambique, the longer I was there, the less I seemed to know. So I, what the motivations, what's under, underlying this inability to translate what you hear the president saying into what happens on the ground is very complicated. Uh, I think there are a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of different um, uh, elements who are pulling in different ways. Uh, corruption is not uh, is is a, is a key element to a lot of these these things. Uh, power is a lot of is a key to a lot of these things. But I think it's not just on this issue. I mean, we hear the president make statements uh, of things he wants to see happen, and they just don't seem to happen. And I think they require a lot of pushing, a lot of encouraging. Um, capacity is is a, is a challenge across the board. So I, I saw our role as trying to see what we could do to make those make, you know, improve that capacity and make the uh, the government more uh, able to con to translate what they said they wanted into what actually happened on the ground. Thanks. Zineda? Um, uh, my particular view on this one is that if we want to build strong countries and institutions, at one point, especially we Africans, we, we need to stop looking at the president as the solution for all these issues. And I'm saying this because I really appreciate the efforts of President News of condemning what is wrong. For example, the allegations of human rights abuse, he has over and over condemned them and asked security forces to behave disciplinary when they are on the ground, to respect human rights, and to be on the ground to protect people, not to abuse them. But it's not the president's task to investigate those abuses. It's also not the president tasks to arrest, uh, to, 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 to instate uh, criminal um, or disciplinary actions against soldiers that misbehave. It's also not president tasks to take them to jail. It's also not president's task to trial them. It's not also president's task to come up with a sentence or a punishment that, that fits the, 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 the crime. Um, it's also worth noting the president's frustrations at the time. For example, when uh, the majority of the 189 people that were on trial were released, the president expressed his disappointment to the fact that so many people were in jail, went on trial, and then at the end of the day, they were released. It means something was done wrong in between. Either investigations were not done clear to bring these people to the justice, to justice system properly, or indeed they were arrested and kept in jail for too long periods uh, without having committed any crime. And I would, if I had, was the president myself, I would be very worried about the fact that these people, including women with children, were in jail for since October, or even before that, uh, for not having committed any crime, together with criminals or, or maybe people that were involved in the insurgency. I think what needs to be done in Mozambique is, uh, and, and again, I leave this uh, as, a, as maybe a task for the international community if it wants to continue to support the country, is to make sure that uh, the local institutions, especially the judicial system, the criminal uh, uh, investigation institutions are, are well-trained and prepared 
to uh, not just support the president, but to also be able to understand the message the president is sending. If the president says openly in public that do not attack people, the judicial system doesn't just listen. It takes that serious and follows up with a clear investigation what is the president talking about. We haven't seen that happening in Mozambique. Yeah, I'm, I look at the situation there from the ground up. And um, the distrust of government is so deep and widespread. Messaging in a one unidirectional way will not work. We need another paradigm for, for, to overcome that distrust. And there are many examples. I mean, I've done a lot of work in Mozambique with um, interfaith groups across the country, um, uh, with community radio stations, with the largest Muslim radio station in, in uh, no, uh, northern Mozambique, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What, what, what I see is working is where you enter in dialogue with the communities about what their problems are and what they think their solutions are. It can't come from above, it can't come from outside. Corruption plays such a huge role in the distrust. The, everybody knows about the corruption in Maputo. Everybody, everybody lives corruption in Cabo Delgado with the police, in the schools, in the, in, in the clinics. People, you have to ask, okay, what do you need for your schools to work well? What do you need for your clinics to work well? What do you need for your police to work well? That is the kind of engagement that it's all about community. It, it's so much about community. And community radio stations can support that. And part of it is, is going in, doing the, working with them to do these assessments, coming up with plans, getting them to plan with you the steps that they're going to take. That the, and when I'm talking about communities, I'm talking about not just the religious leaders, we're talking about traditional leaders, we're talking about the women's groups, we're talking about the youth. They define who their community is also. So that's, that is so important to overcome distrust, and it's deep. There is a narrative in Cabo Delgado that says that the government is behind the, G the violent extremists because they want our land. And people are aware that there is so much, their land is worth so much now. It's not only uh, Anadarko and Gemfield, there's uh, companies that are, are um, looking for, that are, are drilling wells to see uh, what kind of petroleum they get. People feel that they're just going to be robbed and messed over. I was going to use another word, but, <laughs> but, but I didn't. It's a PG And, and that has to be overcome. And they have, I, I went, one time I was in Nampula, and I was doing an assessment for USAID of um, an agricultural nutrition and sanitation project. And I came to, it was a Makua com community. I was, I was in this district, and these people, they came up to me, and I guess because I was a white man, and they, they thought I might have some influence or something. And they told me that they had lost their land, that they had, um, a, a dam had been built, and their land was taken away because, pe because the elite, want, some of the elite wanted to 
um, raise cattle on their land. They got displaced. And they were just begging their neighbors to use land in that. And they were telling me their story. They, it was desperation. And, uh, and so people are feeling this all over Mozambique. And the, and the danger is that that kind of ideology and narrative that has spread in Cabo Delgado among the youth could spread to youth in other areas who are experiencing similar things. In that case, I went back to the governor's office and I told him, look, these people need help. This is, I don't know what happened, but I mean, I, I was almost in tears at the stories they were telling me about how difficult their lives had become. All right, thank you, Greg. Question number two, the elephant in the room. Um, I am very cognizant of Zayat's uh, comment, uh, Zayat's comment about um, not making it true by saying it, but we do have to deal with the Islamic State. And I don't want to figure out whether or not it's true or not. I want to think about what it could mean if it was true. Uh, particularly, um, what could this potentially mean in terms of changing the tactics of the group, the targets to expand from beyond government and beyond civilians to um, foreigners and to uh, LNG facilities and private sector facilities and embassy facilities. So um, I'm asking you to do a little speculation here. Um, do, does this mean anything? Uh, is this just uh, an effort for the Islamic State to claim that they're bigger than they are? Or could there be ties? And if those ties uh, are forged, what could it mean? And maybe uh, we'll go to Zanetta first. I, I think I missed a bit of you, what you were asking from the beginning. I suppose what you are trying to ask is uh, whether I have any feeling about the recent ISIS claims. Yes. Um, I am one of those people that is always skeptical. I never believe in something that shows up like that. So we spend a lot of time uh, looking into detail. Uh, first, whether the source of the information was uh, was uh, verified, and uh, we came to the conclusion that is a source that has, uh, in the past, been very um, certain when it comes to information coming from ISIS. Uh, the second one was to verify what they had to show us, and in the specific case of this claim, they had pictures. Um, I must confess, we spent a lot of time looking into those pictures. From my perspective, there's nothing in there that shows Mozambique so far. Um, we are still in the process of continuing to look into it. Also, inside Mozambique, um, we haven't heard of any reports of that specific attack uh, yet. But again, it takes sometimes time for those reports to come out. It could still happen in the next few days or so. Um, having said that, and I want it to I want to be understood. I'm not dismissing the claim at all. I'm saying we are in the process of trying to understand if indeed uh, it's connected to Mozambique. Um, but it's also worth noting an important point here. Whether that specific event happened or not, the fact that ISIS now wants to pronounce about what is going on in Mozambique should raise the red flag to all of us. Because to date, we haven't heard anyone claiming responsibility for the attacks and gruesome beheadings that we have seen. 
it is particularly concerning that the first time that anyone claims responsibility, that anyone is ISIS. So I think we need to pay attention to it and uh, continue to do more research and to try to find out exactly what are the links between ISIS and what is going on in northern Mozambique. Thank you. Greg? Hi. I don't think there's a lot of evidence of um, ISIS involvement. It, it almost seems more like speculation at this point. Um, well, it's definitely speculation at this it, point. Pardon me? It's definitely speculation at this point. Yeah. Um, I want to point out a couple things. The, there have been some Ugandans arrested in, um, in Cabo Delgado uh, and outside of it for their self, too. Um, the, the original leadership, according to the government, had some Ugandans in it uh, of this group. And then there, there were like three Ugandans who were arrested. And there's speculation while they're Ugandans, they're uh, allied Democratic Front. And, and these young guys said, no, we just came here because our leaders came down here and we lost contact with them. And so we were trying to find out what had happened to them. And they, were, they had been arrested by the government. And he said, oh, we're not the Allied Democratic Front. We're Al-Shabaab, <laughs> which was an interesting statement. You know, um, so a lot, some of the speculation was because the uh, ISIS has claimed the Al Allied Democratic Front, the Ugandan uh, group, to, uh, that's based in the Congo right now, to uh, uh, be involved with them. However, we have to remember even the, the ADF that when they started, um, Bin Laden set up training camps for them in, in what is now southern Sudan, uh, so that they have historic linkages, at least to Al-Qaeda and, and beyond. But I think what we, one of the things we really have to look at is groups like uh, the Mozambique's Al-Shabaab, um, they, they have to support themselves somehow. And with all the drug trade and the other illicit trade going on, um, we have to look at how they might try to take advantage of this. And there's, there's been a lot of things in the press about ISIS being involved, getting involved in the drug trade to support themselves. And with this drug trade going through northern Mozambique by road and by ocean, I think we need to keep an eye on what's happening there uh, and see whether they're trying to take some kind of advantage of it. Sometimes they, they if, if, for instance, the AQIM in the Sahel, Sahara region, they weren't the traders in the drugs, but they, they got a lot of money guarding the, the transport of them and things like that. So I would be looking at threat finance at this point. Um, okay, I'm going to turn to Ambassador Pittman, but I, I hope you heard that applause that the other room got and catcalls, and I'm assuming that we're going to get something that is at least at the, that, that level. Ambassador Pittman? Uh, I won't add too much except to say I agree with Zaneda. Um, I'd be very skeptical. I'm a little surprised it's taken this long for ISIS to claim credit for some of this. It's low cost. It, you know, it, it, they're not, as far as uh, I knew when I was there, not providing any support, either financial or logistical, to, to the elements that we're seeing in Capital Delgado. So, uh, I, you know, this is a is this sort of freebie for them to take advantage of this. But I, I, it is worth watching, uh, but I'm skeptical. 
Okay, we have about 15 minutes left and we're gonna open it up to questions. I think I'll take uh, maybe a series of three and the panels can pick and choose which answers they'd like, uh, questions they'd like to answer. So, uh, questions for the panel. I see uh, a hand in the, in the back and then we'll go uh, to you and then over here. Hello, my name, hello, my name is Connie Kazungu. I'm a PhD student at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and my research is in extremism at Long, the Horn of Africa, actually. So I do see a lot of parallels, and I really enjoyed the uh, discussion. I'm curious about the role of counterterrorism policies in northern Mozambique, and if you see them as being problematic or effective, um, I know along the Horn of Africa, they have proven to be problematic in the sense that they do create grievance, yielding for opportunity for recruitment. So what is your position in northern Mozambique, given the parallels with the Horn of Africa? Uh, thank you to all the panelists today. I think this was a really informative conversation. Uh, my name is Natasha Diane Buchholz, and I work at Universidad Eduardo Mondlane in Maputo. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask a curiosity that I've had in a conversation that has emerged a lot in Mozambique, which is the, this element of the bifurcation of political parties in Mozambique and the discussion that is emerging along those lines. So given that there is this discussion of bifurcation due to uh, the distrust and a lot of the elements that we've discussed today, such as corruption, um, how, how likely is it that the government will tailor its response accordingly to these issues given the confluence of all of the elements that are going on in Mozambique? Is there the capacity to, to respond accordingly and how likely is that? We'll do one more question here. Hi, uh, I'm Sam Ratner from Zinamar News. Um, in the, shortly in the aftermath of the beginning of the conflict, uh, the government of Mozambique signed a series of memoranda of understanding with other countries in the region uh, around security issues. And we haven't seen really, uh, Ambassador Pittman, you spoke to this uh, briefly, but we haven't really seen what the effect of, of those partnerships have been. And I'm wondering whether any of the panelists have, have seen uh, what kind of security cooperation actually looks like on the ground. Uh, especially in Mozambique's relationship with Tanzania and with uh, Uganda. Okay, so we have a question about uh, counterterrorism policy, a question about uh, bifurcation of uh, political parties and how and government capacity, and then a question about regional partnership. Ambassador Pittman, do you want to try to go first? <laughs> sure. You can pick and choose. I'll pick and choose. Well, I wasn't quite sure I got the first question, but I, I, there is somebody mentioned uh, this issue of bifurcation of the political parties. And uh, frankly, during my whole time, and even before watching Mozambique, I really thought if they could resolve the uh, the political uh, problems the country had, they could resolve the issues between the opposition and the government, they could reach a, a definitive conclusion, a peace agreement, and get this and a successful devolution uh, of power. I thought this would answer a lot of the questions because I think it would diffuse power, it would provide more local self-governance, if done right. Um, so I've always seen uh, a successful conclusion of the talks between the government and, and Renamo as key to resolving a whole host of issues that 
that the government uh, that the country faces. So I would uh, I would say that was uh, key, and I'm seeing the, the progress we've seen this year. I think it's very positive. Um, capacity is going to be a problem whether they can do this or not. I think that's the challenge uh, Mozambique has across the board. It's still a relatively young young country with uh, weaker weak institutions. So making these policies real are going to be difficult, quite frankly. Um, and um, uh, partnerships, I'll just say real quickly. Um, as I said, we've tried to bring Mozambique into our thinking on uh, the regional approach to East Africa, uh, and we're already seeing some progress on that. I was very pleased that Mozambique hosted uh, this uh, naval exercise in, earlier in the year, and that brought in other countries, so that was an opportunity. But I will say that the government has reached out, at least when I was there, uh, at the Minister of Defense level and other levels to uh, develop memorandums of understanding and uh, uh, um, ways of operating together and coordinating with Tanzania, Malawi, uh, Zambia, I think as well. And so, uh, so these are the areas I know the government realizes are critical to its, 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 uh, its strategy. I'm going to go back to the issue of distrust. Um, there are a lot of positive things about Mozambique. I've worked a lot with the Ministry of Health, and I've seen a lot of very dedicated people there who want to make a difference in the lives of people and improve things. So we're talking about all these negatives. I also want to point out there's a lot of really dedicated people who want to see things improve in Mozambique. Um, and I'm saying this because I was involved with a this was a uh, universal bed net distribution campaign. And so I was meeting with all the malaria partners and the Ministry of Health and we were hammering out a strategy. And one of the things that we realized was the problem was we didn't want the campaign to become politicized. We wanted the campaign to be a national expression. So we devised a strategy that for the TV and radio spots that were going to be aired around this, that we get people from uh, parliament who represented different parties and put them on the air, um, that, uh, that we, we try to, even at the local levels, discourage people using this for political gain. Um, and I think that that has to be done in places like Cabo Delgado is you need to have a campaign. It has to be inclusive of, of everyone. Um, that's how you begin to overcome the distrust. And um, I remember, this is another trip to Nampula, and having met with the governor there, and there was going to be this, this um, campaign to spray inside the homes for um, insecticide to kill uh, m uh, mosquitoes. And he had told us what he wanted to do, and it was really good. He, he said before when there was a cholera outbreak, people in Renamo sympathetic areas and and the trust was so high that they actually thought that when the health workers came and were putting the insectis, uh, the, 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 the treatment in the water to kill the, the cholera um, uh, germs, that bacteria, that uh, they were poisoning them and, and the youth attacked and killed workers and things like this. The governor learned from that and he told me that he was calling in all his district administrators and he, he told them, 
everybody, you have to get, be inclusive in what you're doing, hold meetings uh, with people on the, uh, with phenomenal sympathizers and all this because we want this to work. So there is that capacity in Mozambique, there is that knowledge there, that has to be encouraged and it can be used very effectively, I believe, in a counterterrorism strategy. On the question, let me start first with the question about uh, uh, bilateral agreements and them come down to the beatification. On, 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 on the bilateral agreement, I mean, we don't know if they're producing any effects because the government has not been transparent. And I think that's one of the main issues around these counter-terrorism operations by the Mozambican government is that they have not communicated much. All they say every time they come open is to say they have the situation under control. I'm sure there's a lot of good things that have been done, but we need to know. Somebody needs to tell us, either the government tell us, or they should allow the media, independent researchers, to go there and report them and document what has been done. What happens as we speak is that we don't know. I know there is a, a, an agreement with Uganda, there is one with Tanzania, I think there is one with the US. Uh, we know about what the US one produced because the Americas tend to be more open, so we knew when the exercises were taking place. But when it comes to Tanzania and Uganda that are governments more or less similar to Mozambique about secret, around secrecism, we don't know what exactly they have agreed on and what uh, they are producing on the ground. On the issue of uh, bifurcation, I, 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 I can't even say the nom correct. My husband is Igbo, by the way, and he's very supportive of the Biafra issue. Um, I think there's no doubt whatsoever that the solution for some of the Mozambican problems is the devolution. Um, the question is how this devolution is, is done. The reason why we are discussing even the possibility of having governors in Mozambique that are representative of the parties that won more votes uh, in specific process is because Renam fought hard <laughs> against the government and violently to get to this stage. Where I'm concerned is that Mozambique cannot continue to build these institutions and laws because it feels threatened by violence and extremism. Somebody needs to anticipate those threats. This time, the discussion of devolution is bilateral. It's a lot about government and renown. As they are about to reach an agreement, another something is starting in Cap Delgado. It means once they have solved the problem with Renam, we might be heading for another new issue. So maybe what the government and what the entire society in Mozambique should start doing is to have those kind of discussions more open to everybody else, not just the two enemies that want to gain something out of it. The entire civil society must be part of it. The other political parts must be part of it so that by the time the country achieves devolution, it is in a way that uh, meets the needs, the demands of all the 30 million Mozambicans, not just two people who are either pro frelim or pro rena Thank you, Zaneda. Uh, 
You know, this has been an incredible turnout, um, and uh, I think that we have a lot of people watching online as well, uh, which really is gratifying because the CSIS Africa program is going to continue to do some work on this issue, and in a couple of months, based on this conversation and other conversations, Emily and I will produce a paper looking at Mozambique and the extremism threat and where it could go. So I hope that you'll uh, continue to engage with us uh, as we work for that process and hopefully have uh, some new ideas uh, and ways to think about, at least a framework to think about this problem. In the meantime, I hope you'll uh, give us a warm round of applause for this panel and the first panel. Uh, really great comments and insights. Were, were we louder than those guys? Okay, all right, thank you so much.